This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Wedding Crashers, starring Vince Vaughn, Owen Wilson, Rachel McAdams, and Isla Fisher. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we will be covering another major Steven Spielberg franchise film, Jurassic Park, starring Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum. You won't want to miss that one, so check out realgood.com or the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can sign up for the weekly newsletter by the website in the show notes. You can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. And as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. With that, we welcome a new guest to the show, improv and stand-up comedian David Feinberg. Welcome to the show. Hi, such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. David, with all new guests to the show, we like to ask a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you. So first up, tell us about yourself and why you love movies. Um, I think that one of my favorite things um, about movies that I think tells you a little bit about myself is uh, I grew up a child of the Disney VHS golden era. And it was basically like one of the first activities that I learned how to do was to press my little three-year-old hands up against the back of a VHS and hit the play button. And I, I I know that I said Disney movies. I watched Les Mis like 3,000 times. So I don't know what that says about me, but uh, I think it says a lot. Well, if you break out in the middle of a song during the podcast, we'll know that had influence. I, I should have worn a big ball gown, like some sort of big like crepe-laden uh, dress. That would have been beautiful. If you do want to perform Shout for the purposes of the film, we will accept that later on. Oh, I, we, we will talk about Shout. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I wouldn't feel too badly, though. I grew up in the same era. Uh, Peter Pan was on all the time. The Rescuers Down Under. Uh, what is it? Um, I'm trying to... The Great Mouse Detective. There were a bunch of those Disney films. Thomas the Tank Engine was also another one. So that VH era, VHS era is uh, very nostalgic for me. But then it begs the question, what is your favorite movie and why? Well, uh, this was a tough question uh, when it was posed to me, and it's still a tough question now. I would say that uh, my favorite movies for repeatability factor are The Big Lebowski, Network, as well as uh, A Christmas Story, if you can believe it. No, I can certainly understand uh, both your first and third choices. I've heard that by a lot of people. I know... Christmas Story is often uh, said around Christmas as like being everybody's favorite Christmas movie, or at least a lot of people that I listen to. And uh, certainly The Big Lebowski, I mean, that's been such a cultish film forever. But I'm curious, I love Network personally. I, I think the movie's incredibly prophetic, almost to the point of being a horror film at this point. But it's not normal that most people would put that in their favorite movies list. That's an unusual choice. Yeah, I, I was I've read a little bit about it. And a lot of people talk about like um, 
there was a lot of there was like a lack of like corporate control when they were making that movie and they sort of like let the writers have their day and they let the director have his day like have their day you know like it's a very uh odd bird when it comes to the way that movies were made so i i think that the more that i learn about it the more i like it and even in not having learned anything about it i still liked it the first on first viewing and i Watched it the other day, and I still like it now. I recommend it to everyone. So then final question that we give to everybody else, what for you makes a good movie? Well, I think that there's sort of, um, there's movies that I'm nostalgic for because of certain eras, because of certain people that I watched them with, because of certain times in my life. But I would say that uh, a good movie to me uh, is the a bit of that repeatability factor. And also uh, the discussion points. I love to discuss a good movie, chat it out, talk about like, you know, a variety of opinions when it comes to the movie. What is it that you thought? What is it that I thought? If only there was a podcast that discussed the ins and outs of movies. I was about to say, I think you might have found something where uh, it's your niche. <laughs> Absolutely. Like I said, an honor to be here. So let's move then right into the movie you've chosen, Wedding Crashers. And usually one of the first questions we always ask, and you kind of highlighted it there in your last uh, response, is the relationship you have with a particular movie. Now, I've said it multiple times that many of my favorite movies happen to be because either I watched it at a certain point in time where it had more poignancy to me, or it signifies either a huge movie-going experience where I was just absolutely awed by something, but there's usually an emotional connection in some way. So what is your relationship to this movie? It's funny that you bring up both of those things, because I think that this is being one of the least poignant and least emotionally fulfilling movies I've ever seen in my entire life. And in that, I think that it remains an artifact in many ways. In many ways, I look at I, I would look at Wedding Crashers the way that I would look at a murder scene in that it is interesting to me because I cannot look away. It must be investigated. And uh, so I've brought it to a public forum such as this in order to decipher the pieces and pick up the shotgun shells and take down the bloody curtains and begin to really examine the DNA on the scene of this film. I think that, like I said, I cannot think of a less poignant piece of film than Wedding Crashers in many ways. And in that same regard, uh, I would say that my, relation to this, my relationship to this movie was defined by having seen it once and you can base, it is the chameleon of movies in that you could watch it and never think about it ever again because it, it, it almost has such a sense of stupidity and lack of self-awareness about it that I think it borders on genius. And that's why I think that Thoughtful eyes and ears such as uh, the two of you would be so good to be, you know, breaking down this movie with me. So in other words, I did this wrong. I should have like rewound it and watched it piece by piece like the Zabruder film. I suppose that in many ways I would I would encourage the American public to take it in frame by frame because I think that there are so many pieces to it that are so strange and so of an era that it's almost as if a computer made a movie for dumb people. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> if there was a way that something... I will get into this later in the show, but I think that it's like if you had 10 uncles that all got drunk one night 
and wrote a movie all together in separate rooms. They each wrote a separate movie and then they had to cram those movies all together. It's it's a strange piece, but I really do encourage people to rewatch it because of that. And I think that that is telling of my own relationship to this movie. I don't know if we've ever had a guest who picked a movie that they really didn't like. I would say, look, I, I don't. I don't want to make enemies with any of the people that made this film. I, it's more that I have questions for them. The way that if man were to encounter God face to face, he would have questions for God too. I think that's fair. That's right. If God is listening to the podcast today, I'd like to meet the cast and crew of Wedding Crashers and then meet God. So please. Well, I don't think it's going to be inside the pearly gates if that's betraying any of my scoring later. God wants to surprise me, God may. This is like the third podcast I've been on and like mentioned that I, my like minor obsession with this movie. My ultimate goal is to have someone write like a PhD thesis about why I feel this way. And they can, I give them full medical permission to like attach diodes to my head as I watch it and like turn my brain off or something like that. Maybe that's how I'll go out. Dad. Do you have any relationship to this movie before today? Yes. It was like one Saturday or Sunday afternoon, and you had turned this on and convinced me to sit and watch it with you. And then I had the same reaction afterwards that I had when I finished it yesterday. I felt like I needed a shower. I I just was like, I really am embarrassed for my gender. Right. I really wish that it was something where they revealed at the end that they were like, they were like, we were doing this as a total parody piece on the male like sex drive because that it feels like that's like a, a a force in this 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 convinced me not to be poetic, but this movie is the is a, a throbbing phallus in the subconscious mind of Americans everywhere, and I will I will stand by that. If if I may, if I may take a moment, it's you know how like when an archaeologist gets to study like the trash of uh, ancient Jerusalem, and that is interesting to them. I really do think that like you know when we like shoot things into space that are man's greatest achievements, humankind's greatest achievements. We should have another one that goes like down. That's all the bad stuff, and see if it convinces aliens not to come. And wedding crashers should be on it. Like, but legitimately, I think that this is something that comedians hear all the time. Oh my God, you can't say anything anymore. Everything has to be so heady now. And it's like, no, there's still a bunch of stupid bullshit everywhere. I love Josh Rubin, and I just saw Werewolves, uh, The Werewolves Within Us, or whatever that movie is called. And that movie. It's like just a fun movie. There's always going to be wedding crashers. I don't care who it is, but we live in a capitalistic society that allows there to always be something for the people who really enjoy fireworks kind of a crowd. You know, the the turn the turn the brain off, not deep thinking comedies. And Europeans will always make the fun, the deep thinking Here's a police officer who's looking for himself in a little rural village. Ah, how fun. I think that I'm fine with where we are. I would if I had to go back to 2006 or whatever. I didn't like 2006. I was in what? 4th grade. 
I honestly would make the argument that comedy right now is suffering not from a need for more highbrow, but or for that that matter, um, an unwilling audience. I think it's suffering more from an economic situation. People are not as safe in other environments in order to feel like they have the ability to laugh and take chances with stuff that's humorous because they're going through a lot of struggles when you come with income inequality and people living constantly paycheck to paycheck. You don't have a lot of time to watch something that, while I didn't necessarily laugh a ton, I thought was incredibly creative, like Bo Burnham's Inside. I I have very little sympathy for people who can't go a little bit out of their comfort zone. If you're listening to this, if you're listening to this movie podcast and I am the first person to tell you to try to get out of your comfort zone, at least with like, what's the worst that happens if you watch a silly French movie? I just, I don't like when people say that they can't. I could never watch like a Lars von Trier, you know, like a, I, I'm not, for, not in my Christian household. I encourage everyone to watch something as left field for you as you possibly can. Live a little bit, God damn it. Extend a little bit. Go somewhere you've never been before. Try a new restaurant. I think that we're encouraged so often to sit in our little box that it's uh, it's mind expanding and probably healthy for you to try watching Kung Fu Hustle, even though it's not the thing that you often like. David, when you originally asked to be on the show and we were discussing Wedding Crashers, uh, you said one of the things that struck you the most about the movie was the writing. And I guess, why? Yeah. I've got a lot of theories, I think, about this movie. And one of them is this. I really think that if you had a printed version of this script, you could take three different color highlighters and highlight three different movies that they were trying to make over the course of this movie. There's the wacky buddy comedy at the beginning. There's the sex romp titty beta house movie that they were trying to make that's like interspersed. And there's a full romantic comedy plot line that they mashed all together in this weird challah braid shout out to my jewish fans challah braid of a film that is presented before you it really is quite a trip to see how fast they jump from one feeling to another in this film i would agree with that sentiment because there is a lot of slapstick physical humor even in the romantic comedy portion of things and they do make some rather unusual jokes even interspliced in that but I guess, where would you separate out the difference between the buddy comedy and all of the, I guess, frat humor, for lack of a better term? Because to me, I think they complement each other in a lot of ways. Often when you have these frat comedies, there's usually two guys involved. You might have a primary character who we'll spend a little bit more time with, but there's usually some type of sidekick that his his partner in crime going through this all and getting through all of the struggles that he is or helping him toward that end. I would say a big point in the film that uh, swaps these things out is the montage, like legitimately a booby montage that then fades into them on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial <laughs> drinking champagne. And that's like where... 
if there was a writer's room, I think that's when the frat movie guy had to go pick up the pizza from the front door and the other guys, the other people started writing their bits of the movie. It was like a constant wrestling for the controls of the plane that is Wedding Crashers. See, I don't know if I I have quite the separation point between that, because I think in essence, you're going through all of that and all the corniness leading up to them picking up women at weddings with um, we lost a lot of good men out there and all those other points that that's the inevitable way that it's going to end, because you're expecting in some type of R-rated comedy to see a titty. Right. And thank God for it. My goodness. I would lo- I hope that this episode blows up to the point that I get to talk to the people that actually wrote it. If you're out here listening in radio land and podcast world and you have a connection to someone in Hollywood, I will do an in-depth 2020 60 minutes style interview. I will become an investigative journalist. I will end my career. Dad, this plot summary. Yes, you have one ready for us. We do. John Beckwith, Owen Wilson, and Jeremy Gray, Vince Vaughn, are Washington divorce mediators who crash weddings to meet and seduce women. At the end of the wedding season, the pair attempt to grab the white whale, the wedding of the daughter of the Secretary of Treasury, William Cleary, Christopher Walken. The pair soon crash the wedding and get much more than they bargained for in the Secretary's two daughters. Claire, Rachel McAdams, and Gloria, Isla Fisher. Will the two continue their crashing ways or find that there is more to love, relationships, and life? Bravo. Your best one yet. I do need to make a point for the sake of the show. I did have to look it up because I've been pronouncing it wrong for years, and I thought for her sake that if she's going to be bothered to be married to Sasha Baron Cohen, who goes under 17 different names, we should at least get hers right. It's Isla Fisher. Isla Fisher. All right. It's uh, apparently Gaelic. Okay. Mm. Good for you, Sasha Baron Cohen, really raising the stakes for us Jewish men. I wanted to tell everybody that uh, I, I found my copy right above my hearth. In my home sits my copy of Wedding Crashers and very much the same write-up of the plot. So good on you, pal. That was very close to the professionals. And that's of the golden age. I could pull mine out. I just watched this one off of HBO Max because I didn't feel like watching the full uncorked version again. <laughs> you didn't feel like strapping in for an, uh, an old session with the old uncorked? <laughs> well, I had the pleasure of sitting through the film and casting it on uh, our friends' TV, and they sat and watched it with us while we were talking. And the two women, my wife and her best friend from college, thought the movie was incredibly contrived and uh, anti-woman. And the husband, my friend, fell asleep. But he's recovering from COVID, so it's understandable. Oh, whoa. And you made him watch this? He volunteered. I was watching it on my phone. To to be fair, you t- made him watch this by selecting it. So I suppose so. My influence knows no boundary. So with that correction, cast for this movie, Owen Wilson as John Beckwith, Vince Vaughn as Jeremy Gray, Christopher Walken as U.S. Secretary William Cleary, Rachel McAdams as Claire Cleary, Isla Fisher as Gloria Cleary, Jane Seymour as Mrs. Cleary, 
Ellen Albertini Dow as Grandma Mary Cleary, Keir O'Donnell as Todd Cleary, Bradley Cooper as, I had to look this up because for the longest time I thought it was Zach, it's actually Sack with an S, Lodge, Henry Gibson as Father O'Neill, Ron Canada as Randolph, the butler, and in what might be arguably one of the best cameos I can remember, Will Ferrell as Chaz Reinhold, uncredited. Yes, sir. Beautiful. Recognition. In 2006, Wedding Crashers topped the nominations for the year's MTV Movie Awards. Woo! With five, including Best Movie. It won Best Movie on-screen team for Vaughn and Wilson and breakthrough performance for Isla Fisher. The financial success of the film has been credited along with The 40-Year-Old Virgin for reviving the popularity of adult-aimed R-rated comedies. Bradley Cooper was mentioned in the August 2006 issue of GQ as one of the top 12 movie dicks. People's Choice Award winner for Favorite On-Screen Matchup for Vince Vaughn, Owen Wilson, and Favorite Movie Comedy, and in 2005, it was nominated for Critics' Choice Awards Best Comedy Movie. Did you know? The scene where the wedding crashers don Purple Heart medals, which is an award presented to military members who have been wounded or killed in armed combat, caused the movie to be criticized heavily for several outraged veterans groups who felt the scene was enormously disrespectful. The film was also released at the same time that the Stolen Valor Act became federal law, making the false display of military awards a federal crime. Did you know? Following complaints from the U.S. Congress, the producers of the film yanked from the movie's official website a printable purple heart advertised as a gimmick to pick up women and get free drinks. Did you know? Rachel McAdams got her certification in sailing to prepare for her role. She says she can now handle a 26-foot boat. Did you know? Bradley Cooper was hired at his audition. As director David Dobkin recalls, My saying is that you never, ever hire someone in the room. You always have to go back and watch the tape. Bradley Cooper is the only person who is an exception. I couldn't find anyone for that role, and then he came in the room, and he was amazing. He was like a thoroughbred. I remember going up to him and saying, Dude, you're awesome. You got the part. Did you know? Isla Fisher used a body double for her nude scene. She told Entertainment Weekly that the film's producers wanted her to be naked for five scenes, but she managed to talk them down to just one. Fisher clarified that she thought that it was difficult for women to be funny once the audience had seen their breasts and thought that her appearing nude would compromise the comedic quality of her performance. Producers disagreed and deemed nudity essential for the plot. Did you know? Okay, I'm going to have to start over because I'm cracking now. <laughs> Sorry, that's so funny, though. That Even the, the purple heart thing. <laughs> I disagree. If Roseanne Barr showed me her tits, I would still not find her funny. <laughs> Uh, okay. Could you imagine being a, a beautiful woman in 2005 at a bar and a man with a paper purple heart on his chest tries to fuck you? That would be incredible. <laughs> That's how I met your mother. <laughs> uh, and you can just say, this is just a temporary one. My real one's coming in the mail. <laughs> They gave me this one as a printout on a website. The other one got caught in shipping. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know, if Will Ferrell hadn't been available for the short role of Chaz, director David Dobkin had actor Nicolas Cage in mind for a backup, as he revealed in the Spitballing podcast. Did you know, Will Ferrell was offered the role of John Beckwith, but turned it down for a smaller role. Did you know, 
Jane Seymour was called in three times to audition for the role of Kathleen Cleary. Reportedly, she beat out many, many actresses in their 50s and early 60s, also auditioning for the role of Mrs. Cleary. Did you know, Vince Vaughn recommended Justin Long for the Todd Cleary role. When Long auditioned, he played the role with influence from Buffalo Bill from The Silence of the Lambs. Long initially thought he was cast before Keir O'Donnell was hired. Long and O'Donnell became subsequent friends afterward. Did you know? According to BoxOfficeMojo.com, this movie is the sixth highest grossing film for New Line Cinema. The films above it being ranked, in order, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, I'm seeing a theme, Rush Hour 2, and Austin Powers in Goldmember. Jesus Christ. The American, if there's a place to stick the thermometer and, and get the temperature of America, it is <laughs> that list. My God. Yeah. And then finally, I, in a article that uh, I have to read from, did you know, in relationship to the Visine prank from the movie, an urban legend suggests that tetrahydrozoline causes violent diarrhea if only taken orally, popularized in the 2005 comedy Wedding Crashers, where one of the main characters puts eye drops in a rival's drink. There's unfortunately been some high-profile examples of people using eye drops orally to get back at people they don't like. End quote, David Edwards said. To the, quote, to the best of my knowledge, no one has ever died from this type of poisoning, but there are some very serious side effects. End quote. Mm. There, those side effects can include abnormal drowsiness, sedation, lower high blood pressure, difficulty breathing, decreased heart rates, and even a coma. The film scene is alleged to have inspired a number of copycat crimes. Five high school students in Milwaukee nearly killed a classmate by imitating the prank in June 2006. A Wisconsin woman was jailed for 90 days for repeatedly poisoning her roommate's water with Visine in 2011, confessing that she got the idea from the movie. In March 2013, a California man was charged with domestic violence and poisoning after he spiked his girlfriend's drink as a prank following an argument between the couple. A Google search for Visine prank yields over 19,500 results, including several more cases of poison pranks, most occurring from 2005 onwards. Although it's commonly believed that ingesting tetrahydrozoline will cause diarrhea, that's not actually the case, said Edwards. Quote, it's much more dangerous than people think, end quote. Edwards said, these deliberate poisonings might not be designed to do dramatic damage just to make someone feel terrible, but eye drops are obviously designed for topical use, and I think anytime you're taking something in a different way than it's intended, you've got potential problems. And that's all from therecord.com. So I'm sure you guys want to dig into a bunch of those things, but I will ask you to refrain until we get to the categories. Instead, we're going to move to what is this movie about? David, I think you've gotten already uh, seven taglines from my count uh, in the opening portion of this movie. So dad, instead, I'll turn to you. If you were to suggest this movie, which I'm not sure you would, to anyone, how would you pitch it to them? Hallmark Channel meets the Playboy Channel. That's, yeah, that might be the most distinct you've ever been on that that particular issue. I had uh, two overgrown men children are forced to grapple with their narcissistic and juvenile behavior when falling in love for the first time. I had a crescendo of the American cultural experience dips its head out of the waters of obscurity only to be lost back to the sea yet again. It's almost poetic there, David. I, I kiss the man muse. So... 
dare I say, did you actually nominate anyone for best performance, David? I will say Tyr O'Donnell, I believe, the artist boy, right? I think it's Kier with a K. Kier. Kier O'Donnell. Mm-hmm. That, okay, That there's one scene in the movie that always gets me, and every time that I show this monstrosity of a film to people, it gets them too, is when he's on the dock painting and he screams... <laughs> I'm, it's killing me right now when he screams, death, you are my bitch lover. That is so funny. And really, uh, like, that's the part of the movie that makes me genuinely laugh. And then all the other ones, I'm like putting red string on a tack board that's off camera right now. Like, uh, but that scene is funny. I'm forced out of almost habit to finish that. You go get him, Todd. You tell that mean ocean. There you go. I love that scene. And Christopher Walken's also so funny. Oh, my God. They played off of like the same thing. I don't remember which Woody Allen movie it is, but like a young Christopher Walken where he's like, he's like, you ever look at the headlights coming towards you on the highway and you think about turning into that traffic? And then Woody Allen's like, uh, he's like, I'm due back on planet Earth now. Christopher Walken, if you're listening to this, you are so funny. He's really he nailed it. Christopher Walken, let's be friends. If, you, if you're ever in Chicago, let's, let's have a drink, a sandwich, whatever you want. It's on me, baby. I'm buying. He Deep has pizza. some serious Bruce Dickinson vibes coming from this movie. That se- yeah, Todd, you tell that mean ocean. Ah, I'm going to say that to myself in the shower tomorrow. I'm sure of it. It's so funny. All right, Dad, well, who was your best performer? Oh, boy, there were so many. Poor and lethargic performances. <laughs> it's true. I'm going to go with Owen Wilson because at least he seemed to have some uh, ability to emerge from the every Owen Wilson film category. I mean, Vince Vaughn, I don't know why you just don't put a cardboard cutout in the film instead of him because it's always the same. He, he just, he can be funny at times, but it's usually because he has good pace with the lines, not necessarily because of his acting skill. So anyway, I went with Owen Wilson simply by default. I Oddly enough, this was the movie that I knew him for basically until The Hangover. I went with Bradley Cooper. He is an absolutely reviling villain. For most of this movie, you have no trouble hating him whatsoever, and he does it so well, and yet now we know him as this like leading man who's uh, overly charismatic. We all love him, and he's in all of these classic favorites that I've probably seen a bunch of times. But this is still the movie that, until that, it was, oh, that's the villain from Wedding Crashers. I, I had him just, I'll, as long as we're in the process, I'll say he was my second best performer. Because actually, he did have to act. Again, he's incredibly unlikable in this film, and you have to play up how badly that guy is to somehow be worse than the two guys crashing weddings. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, they they retain a likability, and yet they're like doing stolen valor and like like screwing all these women out. And it's not like an anti-hero thing, but then you also have to have someone that had to play up being a butthole the whole time. Good on you, Bradley Cooper. If you're listening to this and you're ever in Chicago, food's on me, pal. 
I, I think that's actually the case for most of these characters is that you have to make them abhorrent to make these two guys and their juvenile behavior seem more acceptable. Chaz is an absolute psychopath who uh, I'll nominate now already Will Ferrell for my best secondary performance. He is just so brilliantly over the top in that small sequence that we get from him to the point of crashing a funeral, which is by far one of the worst things that I can think of to point to in any comedy. The emotional manipulation and and the rest of it just in such poor taste that anyone would bother to even write that, let alone all of the other things that the accoutrement that he brings to that particular character. But you, you think about Chaz, you think about the fact that Isla Fisher is written as being essentially a, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Nymphomaniac. Nymphomaniac is, yeah, that's probably the, the best word for it. And that she's so hungry for it that she doesn't care about anything to do with Vince Vaughn's character at all. And the fact that he's basically been trying to keep her at arm's length for this entire time somehow falls in love in the course of a weekend with him enough that they sustain a long-term relationship despite all of his flaws. And then the boyfriend of the other guy has to be so atrocious as just a general human being that he makes Owen Wilson look good in comparison. The two daughters, I mean, both Isla Fisher and... and, uh... Uh, Rachel McAdams are not very nice women. The one can't keep a straight face. She thinks everything's a joke. And the other is a nymphomaniac and just does whatever she wants when she wants. Two ch- two daughters of privilege. That's true. It's like funny to see like uh, the two sides of the coin of privilege. It's true. Not, but if any nymphomaniacs are listening, if you're in Chicago, dinner's on me. Literally or figuratively. Hey, look, whatever way you want to cut that cake, baby. And the cake is my tush. Anyway. I thought you were going to say the cake was on you. Good good puns, gentlemen. Heave ho. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I just, I don't know. Where am I even to go from there? Uh, David, who was your best secondary performer? Did you have one? Uh, yes, my best secondary performer is Vince Vaughn's mouth. Shout out to Vince Vaughn's mouth. For all the things that it ate in this movie. May I say that my obsession with this film has gone on a long time, as we all know, as as we've established. I don't know if it's going to come across as charming at the end of the podcast, but one of my favorite things is uh, I made a collage uh, like on like a photo editor app on my computer of all of the times that he is eating something. And it's so funny because it's like there's like some sort of the edible woman complex about his uh, gluttonous craving for both cake, roast beef, and vaginas. He really lets it go in this film, constantly eating. So performance by Vince Vaughn, but especially that mouth. What that mouth do, Vince Vaughn, if you're in Chicago, dinner's on me. Uh, I know he's in Chicago often. Interestingly, too, is his mouth also got to do the motorboat effect for uh... right. The deep sexualization of food, I think, is something that we could really uh, break down in this uh, on this podcast today. I feel God on this podcast today. You motorboat and son of a bitch. You motorboat and son of a bitch. Are they built for comfort or for speed? 
I know that this is an audio format, but you can picture my face alone in my home making enemies with my neighbors as they hear me make a motorboat noise through our thin walls. All right. So uh, I feel like I need to go first on this particular category because it might devolve from there. Since we've mentioned teenage brains before, and I was about 13 or 14 when I first saw this movie, my most charismatic award is a tie between both Isla Fisher and Rachel McAdams. And frankly, I didn't think they have looked sexier in any other movie I've seen since. But I think that was the point. So yeah. Dad, who is your most charismatic? Christopher Walken. It's Christopher fucking Walken. And he's in this film. Okay? It's like... Using uh, the complete works of Shakespeare to prop up your monitor. It's like playing turkey on the straw on a Stradivarius. Why he wanted to do this film, I don't know. To be fair, and let's just pump the brakes for a second. He does put on his pants the same way we do, one leg at a time. But then he makes gold records. Uh, I would say my my most charismatic uh, is John McCain, who is in this movie. <laughs> Shout out to John McCain. You're not in Chicago, but if you were, dinner would be on me. Yeah, I would say that that's probably uh, the moment that really like throws me for a loop the most, but really I was like, oh, John McCain's kind of cute. He's a little adorable. <sighs> he always sounds like he's like seeing a mouse. And he's like a housewife from the 50s. So John McCain. All right, let's go through the course of the scene work here. We'll just kind of go in round robin fashion for nominating scenes. I'll just start off the top. The divorce negotiation has to be one of the weirder things to inject you into a movie where they just kind of drop you into the middle of that. And that somehow is supposed to be indicative of the rest of the movie. To me, even though I've liked that scene and I do find it funny, it has almost nothing to do with anything else of the rest of the movie. In no way do they ever really highlight that these guys are divorce negotiators, except in that first scene. It seems like a scene that they shot out of sequence that somebody wrote, and it was funny, so they just included it, but didn't give it any context whatsoever. In actuality, that's what a divorce mediation is kind of like. You shut your mouth when you're talking to me. Yeah, it, it's like that. And then one of, I'll go one step further from that scene, which is one of my remaining questions. They're divorce negotiators, not lawyers, but yet in their office are bookshelves lined with law books. Why? Are they like suddenly studying for the bar? It's to build up their legitimacy. You got to remember these are stolen valor high points <laughs> in America. What is 2005 where everybody was like, uploading poorly done footage of people doing stolen about you ever see those people listening to this podcast a youtube rabbit hole you must treat yourself to are bad cell phone videos circa 2004 to 2010 of people being caught in public doing stolen valor and like people coming up to them about it oh yum 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 what a series of videos anyway yeah i'll do my favorite scene if i may Go ahead. I love uh, when the plots begin. I love a plot beginning to unravel kind of a scene. And we get it like twice when they have to leave the house that they sail to. 
And then also the the scene where they have to crash the wedding. Such a Mrs. Robinson, the graduate style ripoff. <laughs> like he runs down the aisle. I was like, yeah, do it again. I want to see it again. And uh, I, I love that kind of a scene, especially watching uh, Bradley Cooper get socked right in the face. That was sweet. It was a big win for us ugly people everywhere. So, Dad, what's your first nominee? I had uh, the football scene. I thought that was good and really developed uh, your hatred for uh, Bradley Cooper in this film. Yeah, it's really where he turns on a dime as the villain and emphasizes kind of that dickish behavior because it's not once that he like levels Vince Vaughn. It's twice on just complete cheap shots. And it was really it's a takeoff of the Kennedys at Hyannisport. So it's not even original, but okay. You guys are making me so happy that we're doing this podcast right now. This is my make-a-wish wish for anyone who is wondering. I, I lived through my disease, and uh, I get to talk about this movie forever and ever now. And if you're ever in Chicago, you can buy him dinner. It's true. Unless you got shouted out personally. In that case, I'm, I'm, pulling, out all, I'm pulling all the reins. B Coop, you get up here. We're eating together. I'm excited. You pick. You want to go to Portillo's wherever you like. I'm I'm there, pal. That'd be so funny. God, I hope one person does that. If anyone's in Chicago, you hit me up. I'm buying you lunch. Oh. Okay. So my next da- one down then was the wedding toast because it's so. Bleh. I, I really think that's the only way to really describe it. Is is that we're trying to interject the one hallmark phrase that they probably found into the movie to make it seem like there's some emotional intelligence here. I do love that scene. Could I jump to my second? I think that if there's a, if there's a point to take this movie and pause it, if you want to elicit a certain emotional response, I'm someone where if I watch a movie, I really get into the emotions of that movie. So I'm not watching like, old boy before I have to like go to like a, a party or something like that. Cause it'll put me in like a bad mood. Maybe it'll put me in a badass mood, but like I, I know that my mom, the only parts of like Wolf of wall street that she saw were like the first hour, just like the real white people winning scenes. And if you watch the, this movie up until, and you pause it right. Like if you were to somehow edit a fade out, a fade to black when they're sitting on the, um, when they're sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, that's like a perfect buddy movie. That's like a perfect 30 minute short film, I think. So I think that the, mo- the and I know that it's, it's rather juvenile, but the, the titty montage into the two best friends sitting on the steps of our nation's, one of our nation's finest memorials, really does elicit some toxic masculine feelings, which I will put my cards on the table. Sometimes you want to get back to a little bit. I'm not saying that you should have toxic masculine traits, but sometimes getting an artificial version of them, like watching Wedding Crashers up until a certain time code, is a great way to uh, get back to your two thousand your your pre Obama administration self. Dad, I think uh, you're up. Chaz, and I'm going to just roll it into this both scenes because they're really one and the same, which is at the house and then uh, at the cemetery. Well, even in the ending, like as they're driving away, there's kind of like those elements there because he like 
I don't know if he's intending to, but he's somewhat coming on to Kira O'Donnell or O'Donnell. O'Donnell. That's true. That is like a a weird underline of this whole thing. It's like being gay is is a little cool in this movie, but it's also played for total laughter in some regards. Like, I don't know. It's so weird to think about, like, I know that everyone says this, but how much has changed? Like, it used to, like, even when this movie came out, which, as we said, is not that long ago, it was like, I will not be caught being a gay artist, but Will Ferrell will make it funny. What a what a world are we living in? I, I still do love how the introduction of Chaz ends up where you have no idea who this character is going to be. They project him all in shadow and he's just shady up until that moment of the reveal. And they correspond the music just brilliantly to have this thing. And you're like, oh, shit, it's Will Ferrell. And just the shock of seeing Will Ferrell pop onto the movie, even the 27th time that I've seen this, is still like that thing like, yes, because you still love Will Ferrell in some of these regards. You forget about The Candidate and you know some of these other really schlocky movies that he's done. Uh, Let's Go to Prison. Or no, I guess he's not in that one. What's what's the one he did? Get hard? No, that's yeah. Really the movie. the one uh, with uh, the one he Kevin did Hart. with isn't that? Uh, but isn't that the one with matter. like whomever? Yeah, he was with Kevin Hart, and he had to like go to prison for some reason. Like he was a corporate raider or whatever that got popped for some white collar crime. So he has to learn how to be in prison. Yeah. Anyway, you forget all of those because they're still like Anchorman and a few of the other favorites of his. Regardless, him doing this just complete drop in to this movie is still I, I don't know why he decided to just do a small drop in. But Mom, the meatloaf. How many times have we not repeated that? Dad? What's that? Uh Oh, he died in a hang gliding accident. What an idiot. Oh my God, what a, so funny. Oh, I mean, and he knows that he's in on the joke with the whole thing, that he's just got to be one of the most repugnant characters in all of cinema, and he just plays it beautifully. Good good career move by Will Ferrell to be like, no, I won't do the whole thing, but I will do this one scene. It seems like a really, like, uh, like bits down, I, that seems like a really fun scene to have done. Honestly, as one of the best sketch comedy actors, I guess, if you could say that, or comedians for SNL, he might be in the uh, top three or four all time to be on the show. Him doing small cameos like this makes a whole lot of sense because he's just coming in for a pinch hit. I don't know if he can continue to lead a movie in the same way, but if he just drops into random comedies all the time, I think he could sustain a huge portion of his career and he probably will get overpaid for it. So Will Ferrell, if you're listening, uh, here's a potential career move for you. (laughs) Also a possible lunch. The other guys were he's teamed up with Mark Wahlberg, but they advertise Samuel L. Jackson and The Rock, and they die like three minutes into the film. (laughs) Now, if you are ever going to be in Chicago, Will Ferrell, I would suggest that you get Meatloaf on David. Woo, yeah. Whole cast. Let's do a cast reunion. I would love that. Like a public script reading or something like that. And then you can be the MC. Oh my God. That would be that would be such a dream come true. My weird fan. May I say that even this podcast was a fantasy. I was like, there's no way 
I could get to talk about wedding crashes this much. But you know what? Only in America, folks. This is my dream, and you can live yours too. If it's to open a small business or whatever, mine was to talk about a movie that I kind of hate for a really long time. And after this, I will pass away, I guess. I'm not sure. All right. So my next one was uh, Family Dinner. And it's just for the amount of awkwardness of the combination of all the characters sitting around having a meal. And yet there is something wholesome and American about having the entire family sitting around the dining room table saying comments that about half of the table finds offensive and really wants to hit them in the face over. Well, and I I happen to think of the fact that Grandma's sitting there and she talks about FDR and then says, Eleanor, Bull Dyke. And it just reminded me of some of the family meals we've ended up having. The rest of the family dynamic, honestly, who has not had a weird family dinner exactly like that at one point or another? When you have the entire extended family, everybody's got to tell their story. Somebody's got to top somebody else's story. If you ever are the new people interjected to sitting down with the rest of these people, I can only imagine that you feel like I would assume somewhat uneasy and making really awkward jokes because it's just so tense that all of these people just don't like being in the same room as each other, but feel like it's an obligation that they have to get together. Of course, then you have to throw in the getting jacked off under the table. Right. How could we forget? But uh, folks, if you could picture me in my own home, a, a, a handsome Jewish man, holding up my copy of Uncorked, the Uncorked version. In his Bart Simpson t-shirt. In my Bart Simpson t-shirt. I bought this for $1 at a thrift store at the at the Thunderbird Salvage in Philadelphia. Shout out Thunderbird Salvage. I've heard some weird things about you guys, though. Anyway, but uh, this version, um, the American public needs it. If you're looking for a gift for a grandson and a nephew or niece or niece, the Wedding Crashers uncorked version. There's even like a homoerotic champagne explosion going on. I don't know if we can see that with the glare. And I know that we're on an audio podcast, but there's like a, a phallus here already with a general thrusting motion. <laughs> I was going to say Vince Vaughn dry humping the air. But that was about the only way that he was going to bend down far enough to be on the same height level as Owen Wilson. All right. Dad, I think that puts you up. Um, the hunting trip. It just, it, it just seems so fitting that Vince Vaughn gets shot in the ass that he is. So I only have two left to nominate. Um, and, uh, please do. The Midnight Visit, only because I didn't want to call it The Midnight Rape, as he he refers to it the next morning. Him being visited by both uh, Isla Fisher and Todd in the same evening, and then the, well, and for that matter, Christopher Walken, and Christopher, okay, that should have been one of my, un what was it, remaining questions. Why does Christopher Walken clearly, with putting his hand on the ropes, not think something's out of the usual when somebody who is staying at your house is tied to a bed. That's the joke, which is he apparently didn't think it was unusual. 
No fighting, you two. It's because Christopher Walken respects lots of cultures and pre- peoples and practices. And because of this, look, he's a family man and an everyman. And I won't, I won't have people besmirch his character on this or any other podcast. Thank you. Yeah, I brought that to a grinding halt. It it does not age well in the voice of classicness. You always knew it was somewhat of a body double, but it's supposed to be titillating and be kind of the second half cap on that portion of the movie as far as the, I guess, sex appeal of the movie uh, because we wasted our entire wad with the titty montage early on. But... Like of what great redeeming value other than Vince Vaughn's got to be tired the next day and be an angry asshole, which I don't, I don't think he needed an excuse in order to do. Yes. I I, I don't know. All right. Did either of you have any others yet to nominate? I still have one more and but I I don't, I, I had a difficult time nominating the ones I did. Well, mine was uh, the expansion just being the final scene and uh, Owen Wilson coming in with the loud backdoor or whatever that ended up being. And then the punching out sack and all all of the other stuff that that goes into that one. The odd uh, Ike Turner reference that needed to somehow be thrown in there as the face of all domestic violence somehow. Well, at the time he was. OJ? Joe Jackson. Well, that that would have been too culturally difficult for at least a portion of America. That would have been too touchy to make fun of? That would have been... <laughs> white people wouldn't have gotten it quite as much. Yeah, but the, the Ike Turner joke would have been... I mean, that when you mentioned domestic abuse, Ike Turner, in that at that time, yeah, Ike Turner was the poster child. All right, so David has given us some of his favorites already. Uh, Dad, what was your favorite if you had one? <sighs> Chaz, I mean, if the the film would have very little redeeming quality, but for Will Ferrell's appearance. So that's my most indelible, because I I still think that there are very few actors that could just come in and completely steal an entire portion of the movie, especially your final few scenes. But that is one of the lasting impressions of this movie, other than a few of the random lines that ESPN personalities quote all the time, like crab cakes and football. That's what Maryland does as somehow that's uh, indicative of an entire class of culture. Regardless, the, uh, I guess my favorite scene, if, if picking one is still the divorce negotiation, because I can understand how awkward that entire sequence is in retrospect. And I still love you shut your mouth when you're talking to me because I have actually pulled that one out on multiple occasions just to completely confuse people. All right. So, David, what is your most indelible? This was a tough one with this movie that like uh, I I I really do think that and I know we've already highlighted it on the show, but uh Death, you are my bitch lover is so funny to me. Like, uh, I like I think about it a lot. It's really very good. And I think that it is something that who what kind of community would it be? But if if you mentioned it and someone was like, 
someone was like wedding crashers, you would know to avoid that person for the rest of your life. It's a great social fishing rod to see who you would never want to speak to ever again is people who really love this film. I've never heard that term, but I, I think I'm going to borrow it. Please take, please. <laughs> it's the social bear trap. Dad, last to you, most indelible moment. Well, it's the jazz scene, which again, because <sighs> I'm too old to have the titty montage is my most indelible moment. <laughs> Too far removed from being a teenage boy. Yeah, maybe in my younger days it would have been, but now, eh. When Dana watches the titty montage, he has to wear a respirator in fear of uh, what might happen. Good Lord. It's terrifying. You got to take glucose medication. It's awful. (laughs) Well, let's take a quick break and uh, get a refill on our, let's say, comedy medication. And we're back. Thank you for rejoining us. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? We do not. Thankfully, nobody passed away that we need to remember. I'm, I guess, glad, but uh, also we don't give to give somebody their moment. Yes. All right, so then let's move into best funniest lines. Uh, we will give our guest the first crack. Which one would you like to nominate? There, all, all the, I, I don't mean to do a package deal, but... Uh, all of the lines about food that Vince Vaughn says, I really do think are like staples in my mind of this film. He goes like, get some flavor, kimosabi or something like that. Hang on, I want to make sure I get this right. Boy, that's that's a deep cut because I don't remember that. It might be, I, th- I feel like I'm referencing a lot of things with the uh, extended edition. My life is pretty blessed. That I'm with the uh, the old extended edition, but uh, if they, do, I really wish they would do like a Criterion of all this. I'm trying to see where I uh, early 2000s comedies Criterion edition. Yeah, uh, here we go. Ready? Uh, Kimosabi's gonna have some flavor. <laughs> he goes, "Could you pop the syrup for me, just to top off?" And then, uh, and if you see your crab cakes, if you see any crab cakes, get your hands on some. And then, like, uh, they got oysters, snacks, phenomenal finger food. And then, uh, of course, the greatest line I think of the film is "treat cake like a lady." <laughs> God, I love this. Dad, what's your first nominee? Tattoo on the lower back might as well be a bullseye. He should have said it a lot sleazier than he did, but... There was a way to say it's sleazier? Yeah. Ooh, tattoo on her lower back. Might as well be a bullseye. All right, my first nominee. Hey, Ma! The meatloaf! We want it now! The meatloaf! What is she doing? I never know what she's doing back there. Honestly, as much as I love the meatloaf comment, the... I don't know what she's doing back there is so uh, a movie within a movie talking about uh, a character who's literally there just to answer the door and get paid and recite two lines, I think three, maybe. And you're poking fun at the fact that this is somebody who's an extra that I don't know what she's doing back there because she's not back there probably by that point. Mm. 
It's so funny. I never know what she's doing. That he also serves it up with that uh, that face of his, that Punham face. Yep, uh, absolutely. I never know what she's doing back there. Oh, so good. Uh, all right, uh, David. I think you're up again. Uh, ooh, uh, I would say, uh, yeah, you tell, what is it? You, you got it better than I did. You tell that ocean. What is that line? Go get it or go get him, Todd. You tell that mean ocean. You tell that mean ocean. Oh, Christopher, you nailed that line. My friend, my goodness. Way to kill it. You tell that mean, just like the most hesitant parent in the world. Great stuff. All right, dad, your next one. Grief is nature's most powerful aphrodisiac. <laughs> oh my god it's so bad you shut your mouth when you're talking to me david uh the sound of uh vince vaughn making the motorboat noise are they built for comfort or for speed is it where you motorboating you motorboating son of a bitch you oh god well i thought the best part was is she still in the house <laughs> <laughs> i forgot about that that he does say she's still in the house oh yeah you know how they say we use only 10 percent of our brains i think we only use 10 percent of our hearts uh that was completely ad-libbed apparently in my research barf barf grandma president franklin roosevelt he was a doll the wife though eleanor big dyke huge dyke a real rug muncher. Looked like a big lesbian mule. <laughs> it just reminds me so much of like how every Will Ferrell film starts out with such random like quotes that are completely fake. Like uh, Talladega Nights. Uh, America's about speed. Hot, nasty, badass speed. Eleanor Roosevelt, 1939. <laughs> I think that joke would work just about every time. I forget who's turned it. Oh, no, I think it's yours, David. Yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, I, 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 this has to be my final nominee. And I want to thank every all the other lines for auditioning. But I, I really I have to give it to Brad, Bradley Cooper with uh, his imitation of a seal pup with oil all over it. Just think about thinking about that scene the amount of millionaires that were in that room to watch all of those scenes happen is mind altering, but like, is, uh, he's a very funny actor. If you ever want to have me back, I would love to do one of these again on uh, the hangover. Cause he's super funny in that too. We'll keep you on the list for that. Sure thing. Yeah. And then I'll do a movie that I actually enjoy. A friend in need is a pest. <laughs> uh, Jeremy and John I didn't get a lot of sleep last night John I'm fried soft mattress yeah that could have been it could have been the soft mattress or it could have been the midnight rape or the nude gay art show that took place in my room one of those probably added to the lack of sleep try one of these scones you're gonna love them I'm a little too traumatized to have a scone let's move do you hear that how that's like not a line that a human being would write that's why this is a weird movie that sounds like two people that have never listened to each other in their entire, like. They're talking past each other. I don't think that sounds any more like what a human conversation could be, especially two friends that are such old friends that they act like a married couple. 
because married couples talk past each other all the time. Anyway, Dad, your next nominee. I don't have any more. Oh, you don't? All right, so this is the Tom show then. Jeremy confessing to the priest. She's good. I mean, I believe that she was a virgin and it hurts to be lied to like that. It's a horrible feeling to feel that way, but I, you know, was looking to take advantage of something too so I could really feel that bad. It's not like I was who I was. You know what I'm saying? So fair play. And let's be honest with each other here, okay? Let's put all the cards on the table. She's fit for a straitjacket. This broad is fucked three ways toward the weekend. And you want to know what? I dig it. It turns me on. Yeah, it turns me on. Because you know what the kicker is, Father? Maybe I'm a little fucking crazy. That's right. Maybe Jeremy is a little nuts. And there's something about me that I'm a little cuckoo. And I know it's a surprise. I know it's not on the surface. Man, I had a little imaginary friend when I was a kid. His name was Shiloh. We used to play checkers with each other every day. And bless his heart, Shiloh would always let me win. (laughs) And that ain't normal. There's something odd in that. But maybe that's what it takes to make you feel connected to somebody. I don't know. But I know that when that redheaded starts getting kooky, there's something about me that feels alive inside. Digging talking with you. You're a really enlightened cat, and I like that about you. I think you're a special, special man. Come in for the real thing. That is a good pick. Really good pick. Crab cakes and football. That's what Marilyn does. That that uh, line also, is so Also, I, I can't funny. believe this scene didn't come up for you. This sounds like the most perfect nomination for you. Uh, who else wants something? I want a bicycle. A bicycle? Well, I, uh, a bicycle? That would take a lot of balloons, and honestly, Uncle Jeremy's a little tired right now, so why don't we do something like, let, let's say a giraffe. I just want a bicycle! Well, why, why are you yelling at me? Whatever, make me a bicycle, clown. I'm going to make you a bicycle. But I don't want to make you a bicycle. Shut your mouth, funny guy, and make it. That's that's the other guy getting his uh, writing, and that's the other uncle writing in on this movie. And uh, may I say, calling someone a clown is still one of the funniest things you can do. Oh, my <laughs> God. I just want a bicycle, clown. Oh, my God. And a fitting final nominee for me that uh, I can't believe neither of you went to. Mom, make you feel her tits. Did you say something, Todd? Mom, make you feel her tits. Todd, where are you going with this? Just don't. Don't say anything to my dad, though. Some friend of my sister's, she said something to my dad a couple of years ago. He now lives in a shack in Guam, not by choice. (laughs) Yeah, the, the disappearing act. That is such an awkward scene to throw into the middle of this movie. Every scene in this in this goddamn <laughs> firestorm is a awkward, weird. See, it's it's like they did a cut up job on the script, and we're like, we gotta go put it back together. One of the interns cut the script up in a moment of jealous rage. This movie's crazy. <laughs> so then, let's turn our attention to the Stanley rubric. Uh, first up is legacy. Uh, normally, one of us goes first. Dad. Uh, what did you have down for legacy? I I went with legacy at the uh, as far as uh, the actors and uh, people in the film. So to divide it into the two parts, which is more of the significance of the movie itself versus what took place kind of within the Hollywood. I gave it a three for legacy for the fact that it kind of made Vince Vaughn or helped make Vince Vaughn kind of bankable for a bit. Owen Wilson was bankable for a bit. 
kind of launched uh, Isla Fisher into a few other roles. So I gave it a three for that reason. The legacy, as far as what it normally does, uh, I gave it a one because it just, it just, uh, it made me, uh, like I said, I felt like I needed to take a shower after I got done watching it. So, so overall it's a uh, four. So I ended up, I still think this is a oddly pop cultural reference point. There are a lot of these lines that are randomly quoted in a a lot of weird places that pop up all the time. I think a lot of people know what this movie is, have seen this movie in some capacity. A lot of people rewatch this movie. It was probably the biggest movie of either Owen Wilson or Vince Vaughn's careers at this point. I mean, Owen Wilson at this point is uh, basically subjected to being the B star on uh, a MCU TV show on Disney+. Plus. That's where his career's at at the moment. But I guess it's what they're most known for. One of the bigger, biggest comedies or classic, or it's not one of the biggest comedies or classics per se. Another example where the impact in the moment was probably bigger than the legacy has going on. But it does have somewhat of a cult following yet. I just, I guess it's not necessarily either of your proclivity or audience. Uh, so I gave it a 1.5 for the industry just kind of on the same lines that Dana did three for the audience, because I, I do think that there is an audience yet for this movie. Uh, David, what do you think? I think that, uh, I, I must stick my feet into the ground and say that, uh, like legacy. It's interesting that we talked so much about that. It does have weird references all over the place, which is something that I think needs to be brought in. And with that, I will give it a two for, um, just like, like the legacy piece let's let's give it a point five, two point five, and then that's the legacy within just like the public eye just the industry i you know what now that i now that i sit with it let's give it a 3.5 for the industry because we're getting sort of a prototype of the owen wilson vince vaughn vehicle that we all love to slurp up, don't we? So, David, that was a 2.5 for audience and 3.5 for the industry? You've got it. All right, so then that's a 6 overall for you. And then the average score would be a 4.83 between us. Uh, Let's go impact significance, kind of along the same lines. Again, I think this was a bigger movie in the moment than it was in the the further legacy. I remember this being a huge movie at the time. Uh, I remember a lot of people going to see it. I remember it ending up being or making a lot of money. Uh, The marketing and the fervor that summer was there for this. And it was one of the biggest movies of that year, if I remember right. But I didn't go see it until the year after, like I said, because it was R-rated. I think in the moment, because this was a low budget thing and because it ended up uh, being the catalyst for them producing a whole bunch of other stuff. I think I had to give it a a five for the audience because this was what comedy was at the time, or I guess the rebirth of the R rated comedy and the industry. I had to give it a 3.5 kind of in the same vein because it proved the audience was there for an R rated comedy. Think of the movies that follow this. We've mentioned a bunch of them already, but knocked up super bad for getting Sarah Marshall, get him to the Greek, the hangover. And those are all within five years after this movie came out because the box office was huge for this. 
we haven't had a movie that I think has come out at, on comedy wise that has been in like the top three for a weekend or an opening weekend. If we have, it's been very, very few. And I just don't see comedy movies like this anymore. But for a good eight year period afterward, uh, you ended up producing a lot of stuff. So I ended up with a nine. David, let's go with you. What do you think? I, I'll be honest. There's a there's a part of me that wished that I had a lived experience piece with this movie beyond having watched it like on a DVD later on. Even when the idea of the format is still like laughable, right? Like, um, I wish that like my brain hadn't been like in the primordial mush of my early years when this movie came out. But I think that because it stands as a testament and like time capsule piece to uh, an era of like masculinity and comedy in my eyes. I think that I'm going to give it a 4.5 and that's really being with a generous hand and uh, a soulful perception, right? I really want people to remember that I'm just feeling mighty generous right now in saying that as its score. By the way, I need to correct myself. Uh, if I added my two scores together, it was an 8.5, not a 9. So I, I need to correct that. Did you end up as a 4.5 total there, David? Yeah. Okay. Dad, your impact significant score. Um, it was big when it was released. So I 4.5. And what it accomplished as far as the industry, I think it did. So I went with 3.5 as well. And I, I have a hard time. I know that these other films were uh, released, as you've commented, and I thought about that. I'm not sure this is a direct tie-in other than some producers were willing to do films uh, with an R rating that were comedies because of this, but I don't think it directly influenced those films. So that's why I went with it. 3.5, so 8 total. That ends up as a 7 average between us. The one thing that I'll push back on there and why I ended up going differently is just sim simply because if you have a genre movie that proves that you have something that can work, I think Hollywood's much more willing to give chances. I think they're scared of their own shadow, which is why we have so many sequels and franchises that it's an economics thing more than anything else. And you have to have something that is bankable, which is why you don't get a lot of uh, new age comedies or stuff that's really edgy from Hollywood producers. That stuff's all either in comedy specials or you might get occasional stuff on a TV show. Like if you get some decent writing on a uh, Dead to Me or a Kaminsky Method or something like that, even Modern Family was doing better comedy writing than anything that was coming out uh, from Hollywood directly as far as uh, movies or cinema. So it, it's just that I know when you're trying to predict certain things with Hollywood, if you can see that something's going to be successful, more will follow. And that's really where the heart of that comment comes from. Uh, all right, let's go to novelty. Uh, I think David's probably best prime to uh, start this one out. The first question, uh, and not to reveal too much behind the curtain, but the first question that we were talking about of like, did this push the boundaries of comedy? Or it sort of led the, it was the tip of the spear. And what does that tell us about, uh, about the world and ourselves? I think that I leave that to the audience to um, 
reckon with and wrestle with as well. Did it create a new genre? No. Thank goodness. <laughs> Is there a different style or possibly a... No. Are there unicorn qualities in that it's taken a 25-year-old stoner onto a podcast? That's my unicorn. Is there anything else associated with the making and viewing of this movie? I would say this is a good movie to pass by in the lobby of a best Western as you check into your room or perhaps to hear through the walls of an apartment building as you question the sanity of your neighbor. Uh, So your score? (laughs) Three. Oh, perfect. That's exactly what I had myself. Nice. Ah, now we're cooking with gas, folks. What exactly about this is novel other than kind of the premise and the device of wedding crasher for the juvenile behavior that they need a reality check from? All comedies that act in this way where somebody needs to grow up, the frat humor, whether it be for a love interest or something else, really are not pretty novel. It's just simply that the juvenile behavior in this situation is the most novel thing about it. That's the only thing I had. So I, I went with a three. Yeah. And I think I'll, I'll warn the, I'll warn the public and especially the wedding crashers, cult and fraternity communities that if they dare strike out against us, we are being generous right now with our threes. What uh, was your score though? Well, yeah, just just to make this a little more interesting, I, from a novelty point of view, considered this like a bowl of uh, linguine. It was kind of novel in the fact that it just seemed like a big big pile of pasta that's all twisted in all different directions and nothing's clearly delineated and you have some difficulty kind of pulling it apart to figure out what's going on. And the combination seemed to kind of work enough that people liked it and thought it was funny. So to that extent, I gave it a little bit higher mark. So I went with a 3.5. Ooh, take that. You know what? You're, you're, you're pushing back the enemy at the gates. Wedding crasher assassin community, you, uh, you may shine your pistols at home. We're throwing you bones here. So for all of those in that community, uh, if you're ever in Chicago, David would like to buy you dinner. Uh, That leaves us at a 3.17 between us as the average. Classicness. Let's go to the nuance, Master. We've been talking basically classicness since we kicked off this podcast. What is your overall score? Because I don't think we need to beat this horse anymore. Well, see, my position is, is I started a five and I go up or down based upon cringeworthiness and uh, now remember i have established that the baseline for this that a one has to be birth of a nation so i don't think yes. that wedding crashers can completely go down to that level anyway classicness oh my god you can just line it up everything i mean the me too the the creepiness the the uh just portraying a, a gay artist as being an absolute lunatic, uh, the, the crutchety old woman, grandma. I mean, I'm going, uh, uh. so because birth of a nation is a one, I'll go 2.5. Good enough. Huzzah. 
David, do you want to take a crack at it? I hope that in the future, it's very hard to encapsulate to young people. I work with young people and I work with them and I often try to say like how different things are. And I think this movie, like honestly, like no bit here is like a good way to show them like what was acceptable at one time. I'm not going to give this movie to children, but to think about the like as a really as a cultural touchstone and a thermometer piece, I think that that's the only way that it would retain classicness. But in the same way, it's so funny that we have to put Wedding Crashers in league with Birth of a Nation. This is a high watermark of cultural uh, journalism. At the same time, I think that in the same regard, we must we must remember that if there if there is footage of Vince Vaughn doing blackface and being chased by the Klan in this that hit the cutting room floor, please send it. I would I'd put my address out there if anyone knows of some sort of secret like Watergate tape, fifteen minute chunk that's out there. But I I really I think that uh, yeah to be fair and honest, let's give it. A three. (laughs) A three. That's what I say. And my judging hand smashes the gavel to the ground. Not the ground. The under part of the gavel that the gavel hits. Classicness was specifically made for movies and situations like this where we still have to comparatively and think about some of the movies that have aged horribly. Yes, I put Birth of a Nation in, but let's even throw in one that we did already this season, The Quiet Man and the, I guess you could say, domestic violence that not only was acceptable, but somewhat praised in that movie. That That's a tier below even this, this just bad, raunchy comedy that probably doesn't live well, and most people have essentially tuned out after a certain point in time. Let's just list off some of the problems that I have. The Visine prank. The nymphomaniac, the Chad's Reinhold, the crashing of weddings, the crashing of funerals, the making a a character have to be psychotic and constantly wanting to essentially either rape or assault someone, Uh, the making of the only minority character a stock uh, servant from Jamaica. I could probably go on for a while, but let's just leave it essentially at that. It gets some very cheap laughs. It still gets some chief laughs, and I will say that I am probably one of the biggest culprits of what's going on with some of that, and I do still laugh at some of this, which I think is the whole reason, but classicness for me ended up at A4, because I I just can't, for the life of me, as bad as this is, put it below some of the things I know that are going to end up being lower. And I have to give myself some rope where it makes more sense, because I don't think Dane is going to want to revisit this film at any point. No, I and thank goodness, by the way, that this crack squad of three ne'er-do-well renegades dug up this festering corpse and and dissected yet again. My goodness, we've done such a service here today. Well, we deserve some kudos of maybe preventing people from wasting a couple of hours of their lives. 
David, we always give rewatchability to the guest first. Uh, you picked this movie. I have to assume that you've hate watched this movie a bunch of times. But how is your rewatchability score? My rewatchability score is, in fact, the highest that I will give at a, a whopping 6.5. This movie, if you've got friends that like to tear shit apart, this movie makes no goddamn sense. So if you want to get together with your little friends and your blacklight Jimi Hendrix poster and sit around in your crappy apartment and watch a, a cocksure maniac of white cultural favoritism, this is the film for you. I know that doesn't sound positive, but I'm one of those people that loves to watch something because I fucking hate it. No, there are plenty of people that hate watch a lot of things, so I, I don't think that's just you. Uh, Dad, what did you have for rewatchability? Let me explain before I give the total number, which is I started watching the movie early yesterday morning and while we're visiting some friends out of town. and So I'm watching it, and I'm having a hard time getting through about the first half hour, 40 minutes. Then we decided to go and do some errands, and we went to Total Wines, where we bought large von or volumes of wine and bourbon and came back to have lunch and started consuming the large volumes of bourbon. Let's just say that the rewatchability score rose significantly the smaller the line on the bottle of bourbon went. So to that extent, um, I'm going to give it a little bit higher score than I was originally going to. Because it's so bad, it's good. It's like uh, Elvis on Black Velvet. You know, it's not art, but it's so bad and so cheesy that you got to love it. And so I went with a 5.5. I love that. Is there a way that we go, what, what would you call that? Like the substance list. Like if you smoke or drink, these are the movies to watch. That's like if, you, it's like if you're watching Dude Wears My Car Sober. You know, I, I love that. Dana, you're my hero. You're my podcast hero. There is something about a movie that you could completely turn your brain off. And this is that movie. Uh, there are several other examples we've mentioned. This is easy comfort watching because you don't have to think about anything. The fact that we critically are going over this movie as one of the potentials for greatest movie of all time is a little sad in itself. But then again, we've already done things like dodgeball. So is it too much of a stretch to put this on? I, I've watched this probably two dozen times because it's easily rewatchable. I gave it an eight. It's not one of the top ones that I've rewatched the most often. Uh, again, I'll, I'll reserve that for some movies that I think we're going to have coming up either the end of this year or early next year as this is not one of my favorites. But it's some of those early 2000s comedies that I love and constantly go back to. Uh, so, excuse me, I'm going to give it a 7.5 to make my math easier, and I, I'd rather just have easier math. So it'll end up being a 6.5 average between us. Audience score for this movie, uh, we had an 89% from Google users. We have a 70% for Rotten Tomato users. Uh, so that ends with a 7.95. Uh, so that gives us a total of 32.62, and that would put it at the second to last on our current list. Bravo. 
in between the quiet man and the greatest show on earth. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, yeah. Okay. So it's in high class. Okay. Remaining questions, David, uh, I'll grant you the first remaining question. Folks, fools errands are errands in themselves. But when we think about it, mysteries abound even in low art. My question is this. If the rumors, and there are many articles claiming that Wedding Crashers 2 is in the works, God bless the people with patience that have to work on it. The PAs, the caterers, all of these, the the lowly people that will not see the light of day. If this is true, will John McCain's death be noted in Wedding Crashers 2? Or will it be a universe based in total fiction that is swamped in some sort of nega John McCain clad in armor that protects the United States from Soviet influence? God only knows where the John McCain Republican Party plot line will jump, dare we say, vault from here. (laughs) But when we see at the end of the film, when we think of the uh, intense melodrama of Wedding Crashers that has come to its final end in the scene with a drop-down car, the men with their women, as, as God intended for the end of this film, and they say there's another wedding down the street. Do we see them in 25 years, a little worn out, a little uh, ragged, no longer in their primordial sexual primes, putting the suits back on, putting on the tuxedos yet again, perhaps with kids this time, perhaps with kids this time, somehow working that into the, that's just a weird family at this point. Is It's just a, that chooses to wedding crash as they see fit. Because we, we could think about it as there's a whole secret society. What if it's like wanted and the wedding crasher society chooses them? Because there's a rule book. We know that Chaz has a rule book. Is there Are there more wedding crashers out there, sleeper cells waiting to be activated by the government? You tell me, America. Uh, Dad, did you have any remaining questions? Oh... Just a few. Who the fuck is that detective that he can find out within the span of a few hours their real identity and what they do when they're using fake names? Second, the guy's talking about running for president. And now you know that your daughter is marrying this guy who's a wedding crasher, who's been absolutely lying about everything. Do you think maybe, just maybe, he's going to have some second thoughts about allowing this to happen? Third, there's going to be press in the in the church. And this scene is how it ends? I mean, even, I mean, you know, even the Washington Post is going to have to publish this with a little more, uh, you know, it's not going to be quite to the level of the Washington Times or the Washington Examiner, but still. So those are the three big ones. I could go on, but I don't want to spend the next 40 minutes. Uh, we've already picked this apart pretty well. I'll go with my first one. How did Chaz convince the women from a funeral to go crash a wedding? 
Oh, yeah. He's the master, dude. He's the master. Uh, any other remaining questions, gentlemen? I got to find that Purple Heart website. That's so funny. They said they took it down due to complaints, but I mean, the fact that it, it all existed at one time and somebody thought it was a good idea. Right. Fake Purple Hearts. I'm Googling right now. Well, thank you, David, for joining us. We appreciated having you. Other than trying to advertise to buy dinner for anyone at all associated with the production, making, sponsoring, podcasting, or any other associated activity with this movie, anything else you'd like to plug for yourself? I'd like continued justice for uh, uh, the case against the police officers who killed Breonna Taylor. I'd like to also plug uh, my Instagram, David Feinberg Online. I would like to also recommend that everybody tries eating, what's it called, Rotel in mac and cheese because it's fucking delicious. Anyway, last thoughts for the week for you, Pop. No, I, no. Uh, Again, I mentioned on the show for last week, but from the day we were recording yesterday would have been our patron saint of the company. My grandfather, Dana's father, would have been 81 yesterday and just a shout out to the person that gave, I guess, his love of movies down through the generation. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else, just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be covering yet another Steven Spielberg franchise film, Jurassic Park, starring Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum. You won't want to miss that one, so check it out on realgood.com or the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast, or find Dana or I on Twitter at TJ3Duncan or at Dana W. Duncan. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captain 8 FM.